This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Nobody ever said trade was easy, and we're certainly seeing seeing that play out when it comes to U.S.-China trade negotiations, and we're seeing investors get nervous over it. Uh, you just heard Charlie talk about the market selling off because of concerns about uh, the inability to complete a U.S.-China trade deal. Let's get into where we are. Max Baucus is back with us, former U.S. Senator and U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama, former Democratic Senator from Montana. He is with us from Washington, D.C. Also with us from D.C., Sean Donnan, Senior Trade Reporter at Bloomberg News in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Uh, a lot to get to, but first quickly, Sean, just set the stage. Where are we? Um, because the markets seem to be more nervous than they were yesterday. What's changed? Well, I think what's changed is the tone from the administration. I think yesterday we saw the markets with a fairly muted reaction to the president's uh, tweets threatening new tariffs on China over the weekend. But what happened after the market closed yesterday was uh, Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin uh, called a group of us reporters in for a uh, briefing. And the and the mood in that room was pretty grim, to be honest. And it was grim because what the the picture that they laid out was uh, it looked like the Chinese. We're reneging on some significant uh, commitments that they had made. And uh, you were looking at the top two negotiators from the Trump administration really talking about a deal in the past tense for the first time uh, in recent memory. And so, you know, it, this is it, it felt like we were looking at the talks collapsing there. Uh, and that's that's the news that went out after the market closed yesterday. That's what they reacted to in Asia uh, overnight and what is fed through into the market uh, today. We've had the news since right. then right. that uh, the Chinese are sending Vice Premier Liu He here on Thursday, a day later than expected. But we also know that tariffs are going to go into place at a minute past midnight uh, on Friday. Right. And uh, so things are heating Locks up. Clock's ticking. So Am- Ambassador Bacchus, help us understand some of the contours of of what this negotiation negotiation may look like between the U.S. and their Chinese counterparts at this point. As you look at this, who's who's got the upper hand, and, and what are some of the sort of contours here? I'm not surprised, frankly, that um, this, negotiations negotiations are slowing down a little bit. This is standard Chinese tactics. I mean, they'll go forward, then they'll come back a little bit. And frankly, it's not just the Chinese. You'll find that lots of negotiators employ that tactic. This is nothing really new. What really counts is what's the end deal. What, right. what can they finally agree to? So this is just tactical in the end. I also think that's what Trump's doing. It's, it's tactics. It's, you know, bluster, big, you know, increase in tariffs on Friday. I think he's suggesting. I don't know what's going to happen. He's suggesting that. Frankly, I think the Chinese are not in a bad spot here. They're kind of the adults in the room <laughs> after the Trump threat, they could have stayed, and that would have collapsed talks, but they said, no, they'll come back to Washington, they'll sit down and talk. They're not going to agree to anything they can't agree to, uh, irrespective of what the, what the president said. I hope they reach an agreement. I think it's a decent chance they will, and if they don't, um, then that, that drop in the market we saw today is going to plummet. 
right. in the next several days. Ambassador Buck, has got to ask you, how much of it, you've been on the inside, you understand maybe positions being taken by both sides as negotiating tactics. How much of, though, kind of the back and forth we're seeing, and it doesn't necessarily help that the president treats, but we get an idea certainly of what he's thinking uh, and playing directly to the Chinese, but how much is bluster? How much of it, at the end of the day, do the U.S. and Chinese understand they've got to get something done? I think they realize they have to. They certainly want to. The Chinese, though, look a little askance at the president because he's changed his mind so often for them. And they, they the Chinese, know that. Um, they have to deal with it. That's just who Trump is. So they're going to come over, sit on a meet, try to reach some kind of agreement. And I, I, it's very important for both. I'll start with Trump, obviously, because he cares about the stock market. And, um, boy, the market's going to crater if there's not any kind of a deal here. And the Chinese know that, too. So they're going to give in a little bit, but not, not too much. Very important for President Xi. He's got to show that he's the man. He can't back down. He's got to save face, but he can give in a little bit. So I think in the end, if not next few days, if not this week, in the next few days, we'll finally get an agreement. At least that's my hope. And so, Sean, as you talk to your sources there in Washington, you know, people inside the administration and outside, what is their read of the U.S. position here? How strong is it? Because this is a, as Ambassador Baucus has alluded to, this is a president who has changed his mind a few times as it relates to this delayed, you know, put forward uh, deadlines and, and whatnot. What do people you're talking to, how do they read it? Sure. I think there's two important points. Yes, uh, as Ambassador Baucus said there, there, there's clearly an attempt here by the Trump administration to regain some leverage. Uh, when they decided not to go ahead with this tariff increase in March, in March on March 1st, uh, they, gave, uh, they gave way a little bit there, and they uh, took away some leverage. So they're restoring that leverage now with this move and trying to get to a negotiation. But at the same time, what we're seeing is kind of the limits of where both sides will go. Both the Chinese and the U.S. have domestic constituencies. And one of Donald Trump's uh, big concerns here, and we hear this from people inside the White House and, and, and outside as well, is that uh, the politics of all this. He does not want to do a weak deal uh, with China. We saw Chuck Schumer, uh, the Senate minority leader, tweet out uh, encouragement to him on Sunday after his original uh, tariff threat. We've seen Marco Rubio do the same yesterday. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hawks in this town in Washington, and there's a lot of political vulnerability potentially for President Trump if he comes back for anything that can be seen as a weak deal with China. All right. We're going to have to leave it on that note. So much to be said, but we really appreciate both of your insight. Max Baucus, of course, former U.S. Senator uh, and U.S. Ambassador to China under President Obama, former Democratic Senator from Montana, from Washington, D.C. Sean Donnan, also joining us from the nation's capital, our 991 studio. Sean is senior trade reporter at Bloomberg News. Check him out on Twitter at S. Donnan, D-O-N-N-A-N. Everyone's a winner, baby. Well, there's nothing Bloomberg readers, listeners, viewers like more than banks fighting, bank <laughs> on bank. Uh, and no one tells it better than Jenny Serene. She is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And I love the headline for this. Airline miles for a bank account. City vies with Goldman online. So, Jenny, tell us what's going on. 
So we've seen um, a couple of the big banking giants try and push into this online deposit-taking sphere. And so Goldman has really had a lot of success with this through its Marcus brand. Um, And now we're seeing Citi kind of taking a bigger step and trying to really flex some of its muscles that it has. Um, Citi is really known in the U.S. as a credit card bank. Uh, Obviously, they have, um, you know, their proprietary cards, but they also have the American card. They have the Best Buy card. They have the Macy's card. And so their executives there are wondering, can we take the success that we've had on the credit card side and use those relationships and all of the stuff we know about our customers there to try and lure them into the the banking side. But Citigroup has a retail business too, right? Yes, it's been... uh, It's been my bank since I was in college. It was my, (laughs) like the one I opened up when I went to college. So it's funny to hear that they don't necessarily have as big a presence. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, they have these branches on every corner, and they've just been vacuuming up deposits like crazy in the last few years. Citi has really struggled. They've actually seen their deposit levels drop in 2017 and 2018. And so this is really another chance for them to maybe turn that business around a little bit. And then here comes Goldman. And you know this Marcus uh, division, as it were, has been a big focus, I think, for the new CEO, David Solomon, right? I mean, he's really embraced this idea. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Goldman often likes to say we don't have to be the biggest in banking in in consumer banking to make a lot of money and I think they're starting to see that. You know, they've got this Apple card with um, MasterCard and Apple coming out soon and and things like that. So they're definitely um, definitely finding some of the the happy parts of being in consumer banking. But (laughs) once they have a lot of customers, we'll uh, (laughs) we'll see how they feel then. So what's Citigroup doing? So Citigroup, if you're a Citigroup customer um, on the card side, you might start seeing in your mailbox, you know, an offer to say, um, if you sign up for checking and savings with us, you'll get 30,000 airline miles. Or if you're a double cash customer at Citi, hey, we'll give you more uh, cash back if you sign up and keep a certain amount of deposits with us. So they're going towards existing customers who they already know. So, you know, they're very familiar with the credit risk and things like that and really starting to target them with these new products. And why has Citi struggled uh, in this area? Is it competition? Is it they just haven't executed right? Like what, what's been the, the bugaboo here? It's a good question. You know, it's definitely competition. It's uh, fierce right now to try and collect these deposits. Banks really know that now's the time to collect them because when things take a turn, you want to make sure that you have that nice little funding base. Um, but yeah, I think execution is definitely part of it. City has revamped um, its entire consumer unit. They brought over someone from Asia to run this new business. Um, and they're really looking to kind of change things up there. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how that plays out. But just like in the investment world where people have, you know, run to index funds because the fees are cheaper, right? In terms of investing, I do feel like the banking community, people are pushing back, consumers are pushing back about paying fees when it comes to accounts and you've got a lot of startups that are offering you yeah, alternatives yeah it's a good it's a very good point and i think you know with this um it's never been easier to move your money like it's it's just so easy these days yeah. and it's never been easier to look across the landscape and say okay at chase or bank of america i can get 0.04 percent or i can look at you know a city in some cases is offering 2.36 percent on my money like it's just so easy to move and so they're definitely responding to some of that but you do fall into the trap of perhaps getting into these price wars right. where you have these customers who are only rate you know, they're just rate-seeking customers and not really people who will stick with you through the long run. Well, and you very smartly bring up the idea of this, you know, Goldman MasterCard Apple tie-up where all of a sudden you've got 
essentially competitors from an entirely different industry, right. you know, coming in and, you know, sort of this share of wallet, share of mind that we talk about so much now is being split among maybe some right. non-traditional players. Yeah, exactly. And I also do wonder about the stickiness. Like if once you, you know, I've had that account for how long? Yeah. But I mean, once you do that and you start doing Not everyone's banking. as loyal as you, Carol. <laughs> but it's just, you know what I mean? Like I do wonder, you start somewhere with a retail customer and then you get them to do a mortgage or an auto loan or a school loan or something, right? It is. It's so historically bank accounts were viewed as very sticky. Um, I think once more consumers start to move their money and maybe play with some of these more tech friendly options, the loyalty start, goes away. It, I just <laughs> it makes it that much harder for banks to really, to your point, you know, stay top of stay top of mind. Right. It's just that much harder. Jenny Serene, finance reporter for Great Bloomberg. Carol, one of the most brilliant things about Bloomberg is the subject matter, the personality experts that we have all around the world. And I feel like no one really embodies that more than our Milan bureau chief. That's Tommaso Ebhart. He is on the phone with us from that beautiful city. He's got a new book out. It's about Sergio Marchionne. Sergio Marchionne, excuse me. Uh, and that is the title of the book. It profiles the legacy and the final days of the late Fiat Chrysler CEO. Tommaso, congratulations on the book. So good to have you with Carol and May. Ciao, buonasera from Milan. <laughs> so <laughs> tell us how you put all this together because you knew uh, Sergio intimately. You, you tracked him. You have some yeah. amazing anecdotes. Uh, how did you go about just putting this together? Uh, you know, uh, Bloomberg played a big role in my book, Bloomberg News. Uh, as it all started uh, last summer when uh, when Sergio passed away, it was you know a very dramatic weekend at the end of July, and after you know 48 hours of uh, essentially endless work, I wrote up a first-person story, uh, which is quite unusual for us at Bloomberg, right. uh, to to tell the story of my 10 years. Uh, uh, following him all over the globe with some personal anecdotes, uh, uh, just uh, to give a, you know to picture uh, to give a picture of Sergio Marchione to the outside world because somehow I managed to get into into inner circle, always uh, remembering that I I was a reporter and he was a CEO. Uh, that story went uh, somehow viral on the web. And my top editors in Europe, uh, uh, from Heather Harris to other, somehow suggested me that, that this, you know, should go into the book. Uh, so I was uh, somehow, uh, you know, uh, apart from complete support, but pushed from my editor to do it, and, and it worked out. Uh, it worked out well. I took three months of my life in my uh, small room here in Milan, and, and essentially I just wrote down what I had. Hours of interviews with us Bloomberg, um, personal anecdotes, and then obviously I reach out to the people close to Marchione. Well, ta- uh, Tommaso, this yeah. is what makes it so cool. And I know Jason and I have had the luxury of talking to you about this for our weekend Business Week show on radio and TV. Yeah. But talk to us a little bit about, I mean, you got to know the man. Um, how did that happen? I think you got, you were a little bit of a pest, right? <laughs> and he kind of got used to having <laughs> you around. But tell us a little bit about how yeah. you developed that relationship and, and what insights you got into the man, the individual, the person, the auto executive. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, it all started by me pestering Marchion all over the globe uh, since uh, 2009-2010 when I got to this uh, bit from Bloomberg and, and Sergio was trying to buy Chrysler. Uh, I used to go everywhere he was uh, at the beginning in Europe and then all over the globe. And, you know, studying a bit of the, the auto industry, I was uh, lucky enough to make uh, the right questions and he started to appreciate the fact that uh, I was coming to every event with, you know, uh, f- trying to advance the story. And so then we started to have a more close relationship. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, I started to get some interviews. And then he, he, he uh, in 2016, he even uh, wanted me to work with him. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and since I since I told him, I'm sorry, Sergio, I'm a reporter. I'm never going to be a slack uh, in my whole life. <laughs> uh, maybe the fact that I told him, no way. Uh, you know, maybe him even, you know, closer. And since then, you know, I became a sort of his, uh, you know, sparring partner, I would say. Uh, and so we started to discuss, uh, you know, several topics, not just about autos. And uh, and so this is how we develop a very somehow a deep knowledge. And, and uh, you know, bearing the fact that I was always trying to break every single news right. regarding Fiat Chrysler. And, you know, I... Tommaso, hang on one I'm, second. I'm, we, know, just, we just yeah. want to bring a headline to our listeners because there's a lot going on on this Tuesday. Uh, headline crossing regarding Uber said to have enough demand to price the IPO at the top of the range. So we're talking about uh, the planning yeah. price range, I think, was 44 to $50 a share. So you're looking at an IPO of $90 billion. But again, Uber's saying it has enough demand to price that IPO at the top of the range, which is not a surprising... Auto related, if you will, because Uber definitely yeah, looking at self driving cars. Yeah. Huh? yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the last interview I did with Marchione is he's mentioning Michigan. It was the night before his, life, his last Detroit Auto Show. We discussed a lot about even about Uber mm. and yeah. about the future of the auto industry. You know, Marchione was sure that the auto industry was going to face a revolution in the in the next five to ten years. With very few of the traditional car makers surviving uh, and passing the desert of the technological disruption, and this is happening right now. Right. So, Tommaso, help us understand where Fiat Chrysler is now, because the excerpt that was in the magazine on April 23rd was terrific, because it yeah. really laid out a lot of what was going on in those final days, and also spins the story forward to a company that is struggling a bit. Tell us about that. You know, for sure, John Elkan, who is uh, the, uh, the the chair, but now not just the chair, is the man uh, at Daniele family who is running the show, uh, find himself without without Sergio, who created Fiat Chrysler, uh, and uh, and we are facing a very tough period for all automakers. Uh, investment needed for the tech revolution are so huge that uh, no one can do it by. Uh, itself, uh, so clearly, and you know, I, I you know, I have some, you know, I know Jonathan quite well too, and uh, I know that Elkan is aware of the challenges he's facing and mm. of the challenges that Fiat Chrysler is facing, and uh, in, he's looking around as everyone in the auto industry. If you speak with every CEO in the auto industry these days, they all tell you everyone talks with everyone because mm. it's one of the situation when and big M and A's is always possible because. Everybody now understands what Marchione said three, four years ago now in his capital junkie confession. Essentially, the return on capital are too low for this industry. The investment needed are too high. 
So the only option in the future is uh, M&A, M&A meaning uh, uh, combination. And so this is something that um, will clearly, uh, uh, re- I mean, Fiat will clearly involve in the next, wa- in the next wave of M&A. We reported uh, a couple of months ago that they are in talks with PSA for initially a potential sharing of investment right. in Europe. Well, I got to say, it's really fascinating, and I, I love how you get into some of the regrets that he had. Um, and anybody who is interested in the auto industry, this is a must-read. Tommaso Ebhardt, Milan Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Milan, his new book out. Uh, I think it's it, right now out over in Italy, and it's all about Sergio Marchionne, of course, uh, the former head of uh, Fiat Chrysler. So BlackRock's secret to winning ETF wars could end up being problematic down the road, maybe even costing it something. Bloomberg's Business Week editor, Joel Weber, in the house, along with Bloomberg reporter Brandon Kutchkoden on BlackRock's story here on the terminal, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Guys, good to have you here on this Tuesday. Brandon, let's start with you. Set the stage. Sure. Uh, yeah, so we just basically looked into how BlackRock uh, prices their ETFs in comparison to Vanguard and State Street. And you ETFs, know, what, they cost nothing, right? Isn't it, that the whole world? That's <laughs> the idea. I mean, uh, but uh, for BlackRock, uh, they have a certain uh, different pricing strategy, and so they, they sort of bifurcate it with a lot of cheap ones and a, a fair amount of um, uh, more expensive ones that actually drive their revenue. And, and how expensive are we talking here? Yeah, I mean, so... Because uh, not much. No, exactly. I mean, still, in, in the grand scheme of things, we're talking much, much cheaper. Peanut, than, uh, p- uh, pennies and nickels. Exactly. Um, but the idea is that, you know, you have some of these that are 40 bips and up, um, and there's a cheaper option out there. The thing is, what you don't see, you know, kind of the naked eye doesn't see is the sort of ecosystem built around them. And so BlackRock understands that and, you know, arguably smartly charges more for those. And help us understand the the sort of competitive landscape here, because we hear a lot about Fidelity. We hear a lot about Vanguard. What, where does BlackRock play into this broader universe? Yeah. So, I mean, BlackRock's the biggest provider. Um, and, you know, Vanguard and, and State Street, Fidelity, they all have these competing products. What they don't have and, and what you know, BlackRock has always had is this sort of first mover advantage right. that they've kind of inherited from Barclays, and they've executed on this strategy. And and you know, these ETFs have you know built up huge amounts of liquidity, and they have you know, using this word again, an ecosystem around them. So they have derivatives contracts that you have the ability to lend against them. You know, lend in short. Um, Something institutional investors, hedge funds. I mean, these guys they love these kinds of strategies. Absolutely, and they're willing to pay the extra price for it. And the game has really been scale. Right, like how how big can we get so that we have this ecosystem that's unlike anybody else's, right? But but what you really kind of like were able to get into with this article is that so, sure they have their core offerings that those are going to be competitive with the vanguards of the world, super cheap. But really, they're making money in other places. Exactly, they're making money off off the older funds. Um, so you know they came out with these core products afterwards. They're the secondary sort of offering for some of these. Um, you know, flavors of ETFs, if you will, like, uh, you know, especially the, like, the emerging markets one. They come out with the core emerging markets one. It's 14 bips compared to, you know, the big boy EEM, that's 69 bips. Um, but people are still staying in the big one, EEM, because of everything that's around it. The fund itself is comparable and, and 
the cheaper one actually covers more shares. And the difference between those BIPs, actually, when you think about the scale that they have, it adds up to be a lot of money. Yeah, for BlackRock, absolutely. For the clients, though, I mean, again, it, nickels and dimes. Nickels it, and dimes. It's not that big of a deal. So right. if you're an investor in BlackRock, you look at this and you say, wow, great decision by Larry Fink and crew. If you're on the other side, you're like, well, for me to get that cheaper, if I wanted to, and if I, if I was a buy and hold type, for me to make that move, that incurs a capital gain. And so is it worth saving those couple, you know, sure, of course, I'd like to save those nickels and dimes, especially if I'm a huge investor, but it comes with a little bit of a hassle in between to, to make that switch. So Joel, I know you have a sort of soft spot in your heart for, for ETS, because in addition to being the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, you also host a podcast about ETS called Trillions with uh, Eric Belchunas. So how does this fit into the Business Week universe? How do you think about it in the context of the magazine? So again, I think of it as a strategy story. Yeah. Right. That's like when I bring it back to this, like I think Larry Fink has been viewed as sort of a genius of strategy in part because of this Barclays acquisition that Brandon referred to where they went and basically got this gigantic ETF portfolio uh, that became iShares. Right. And, and that iShares portfolio has just been viewed as a juggernaut. Um, but like he's not alone. Right. And yeah. and Vanguard has become incredibly effective at basically driving down costs. And so that's what I look at when and we talk about this a lot on trillions is this price war that has just really dramatically lowered the cost of investing, which is very good for investors. But it makes life really difficult when you're the asset manager and you're actually supposed to be making a couple bucks here and there. So, you know, BlackRock has that secret sauce, but as prices continue to like go down and down and down, and we've already seen this year, prices get dramatically lower to the point that they will now, one fund will pay you. Right. <laughs> right? It's, it's pretty unheard of, right? So, so I think of this in that larger yeah. landscape. It just makes them stand out, right, as doing something a little bit differently. Exactly. Possibly vulnerable. And, you know, that that nickel and dime observation from Brandon, like, that is how you make money in this space. Right. But it also might be a risk in the long run. Right. If people catch on. It's a really smart story. Very well read on the Bloomberg. It's in the upcoming edition of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, but available on the terminal and Bloomberg.com today. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Brandon Kochkoden, you wrote the story uh, that we've been talking about. Thank you both. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Kara Murphy is with us, Chief Investment Officer at United Capital Financial Advisors, over $23 billion in assets under management. Karen joining, Kara joining us on the phone from Dallas. And as we do, we do see equity averages just coming off their lows of the session, but we are seeing uh, more than 2% declines on those major equity averages. Kara, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. I always feel like on a day like this, sometimes investors can get a little bit spooked because this hasn't been the kind of trade that we've been seeing. We've been seeing pretty much a steadily grind to the upside. And as Joe Weisenthal, our markets editor, reminded us, we just hit a record on the S&P 500 last week. 
What is your advice to our listeners, to investors in a market day like today? Well, you're right. I mean, how quickly this story changes. I mean, as of a couple of days ago, I think markets were very complacent. We had sort of forgotten that these risks were lurking out there. And even though eventually I think we are going to get a trade resolution and that even if tariffs are enacted, they're going to be short-lived, you know, I would stay on the sidelines here because I think there's going to be some additional volatility. I think Trump is taking advantage of what he sees as the upper hand here to try and draw some more concessions from China. But ultimately, he's facing re-election, and he's going to want to sign a deal just as much as China does. But in the meantime, it's going to continue to be a little rocky. Carol, what's your sense of what happened today versus yesterday? Because yesterday, it felt like the market kind of shrugged off those Trump tweets. Mm -hmm. Was it sort of what happened last evening where it felt like it got a little more serious? Was it the reaction in the Asian markets? What What's gotten different, as they say? I have a hunch that, you know, people started to see the tweets late Sunday night. Um, and Monday, they were like, okay, you know, we've seen this before. But then Tuesday morning, everybody hit their inbox and saw the research reports calculating what the impact of all these tariffs right. would be on whether it's individual companies or GDPs. And those numbers are a little scary. And so I think ultimately it's that that spooked folks today. All right. So it's interesting because another another somebody, uh, you know, out on Twitter when I said, you know, sell in May and then somebody came back to me, buy in May. Because, you know, if you're yeah. looking for a value play or a better value, right, a day like today certainly brings down, uh, you know, the price to earnings ratios and brings down the valuation. So you do wonder, you know, unless you think corporate America and the economy is coming undone, right, you might take a second look at a name out there. Yeah, I, I agree, and that's why I, I don't want to stay stay on the sidelines for too long because, you know, particularly in areas like the retail sector, we're seeing some areas really get beaten up on this idea that tariffs are going to bring the whole show down, and I don't think that's the case. And like I said, I think ultimately we're going to get a resolution. So I would just pick your opportunities. Well, and it feels like a place that folks are avoiding, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this, is industrials. We've seen a lot of that mm -hmm. kind of uh, fall by the wayside. What, what do you make of that sector specifically? So industrials is an area where I would be a little more cautious. That's kind of what I view as the center of the storm of this trade war. And also when you think about you know, investments in industrials, those, it takes a long time to build a new factory and develop a new technology. Um, so any sort of deterioration of CEO confidence and lack of visibility a couple of years out is going to slow that cycle down. So in an area like retail, I think companies are more nimble um, and can react more quickly. But industrials is one area where I would continue to stay away until we have more visibility. Where would you be buying, though, potentially on these dips? Yeah, so retail is one area we talked about. I mean, mm -hmm. financials is another one. It's an area that I've liked for a while. Um, it's one of the few sectors that really lagged. Um, over the last couple of years, but now with rates up a little bit, a slight steepening of the yield curve, the, con the consumer continues to be in really strong health, um, so lending in that area is starting to pick up again a little bit, and valuations are just rock bottom. 
and just giving folks a sense of where the markets are. The S&P uh, off its lows now, down about 1.8, 1.9%. We've seen a little off. bit uh, of a comeback, not anything dramatic, but uh, they were they really hit their lows, Carol, a little after 3.30, around 3.35, it looks like. Yeah, exactly, right? We were 2% uh, and or more uh, lo- uh, lower on the Dow and the S&P than NASDAQ. Right now, the S&P is just down about not quite 1.9%, but still... Uh, something that we haven't seen in a while. How much, what's what's the most important metric to you, Kara, right now when you look at the outlook? And I, I'm, I'm curious too how much visibility you feel like we have when it comes to the economic outlook. Just talk U.S. at this moment, mm-hmm. uh, monetary policy here in the U.S., and also kind of corporate earnings uh, outlook. Yeah, so my favorite single metric that I look at for an idea of where we are in the cycle is the ISM manufacturing number. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's an area where we had been running at very, very high levels last summer post the corporate tax cut and then um, really declined heading into the second half of 2018. We've seen that consistently rebound over the last couple of months. Uh, what those numbers are also telling us is that outside the U.S. we're seeing increasing, uh, we're seeing continued slowdown there. Um, But so the ISM manufacturing is telling us that things are starting to pick up, and we're seeing that starting to be reflected in corporate earnings as well. You know, we've had almost 80% of companies beat earnings estimates. That's a sharp acceleration from what we saw last quarter. Um, But I would also say that a lot of companies are beating those estimates by cutting expense numbers as opposed to more top line. So the economy has started to re-accelerate, but we're still in a slower mode than we were last year. And when you think about the conversations that are likely going on at the Fed, you know, so much back and forth, it feels like yeah, uh, over yeah. the last few months. Uh, what do you what do you think if you're sitting uh, sitting there right now? <laughs> I think it's a really they're, they're in a really hard position right yeah. now. Um, if you remember, I mean, it was only December where the Fed was still hiking rates. Then we had a sharp reversal in, you know, around February of this year where the Fed said, okay, we're going to be on pause. Then they said they're going to be slowing, um, you know, the rundown of the balance sheet. And then now all of a sudden we have people talking about rate cutting. So you throw that changing economic environment on top of an increasingly kind of treacherous political environment where Trump has been very public and saying, you know, I think the Fed should cut. He's already nominated two people to the board who are unusually political. Mm. So there's a tremendous amount of political pressure, which the Fed typically doesn't have to contend with. So I think they have a very difficult job right now. Hey, just quickly, 15 seconds, if we see buying into the close on this decline, that's an optimistic side to you. I think it is. Yeah. All right. Because we're seeing certainly some of it still down across the board, but we're nowhere near uh, the lows in terms of those 2% plus declines that we saw in those major averages. Kara Murphy, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer at United Capital Financial Advisors. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 